Tonight, we're going to be talking about being open about sex and what that means as a body. Go to the next slide. Here's our kind of weekly update on what's going on in Christianity in the news. Interesting article written by somebody who would not even reveal their name. It's written this week in this edition of Christianity Today. And the reason I bring it up is because we've been going through five weeks talking about sexuality in the body of Christ. There's one subject we have not covered. I didn't intend to cover it, and I actually am not going to, but I want to mention it to you that if you want further study on this topic, we should at least discuss it afterwards. This article is about struggling with homosexuality in the church. A very honest article. If you want a copy of it, I'll make one for you. It's written by a person who is struggling with the fact that the church they went to told them that it was okay to be homosexual and affirmed their homosexuality and tried to make it okay for them. This person, after 23 years of struggling with homosexuality, coming from somebody that is writing this article, his point is pretty clear. Society is always telling us that it's okay, but when the church joins in and says, yes, it is okay, it really screws us up. The article is about it's hard enough to try to break the cycle of sin without having my church tell me constantly, it's okay for you to be this way, just don't act this way and do all these things, and basically led to a really screwed up uh, relationship. I guess the reason that I pointed out is because I don't feel qualified to talk about this subject. I know there's been a lot of debate about, is it genetic? Is it, did God create people this way? Are you just this way? Is it learned behavior? This person claims that, you know what? Everyone told him it's just the way you are, you should accept it, and he fought hard against it and, and felt the whole time that it wasn't the way he was supposed to be. And that every time he, someone condoned the sin, quote-unquote, he felt worse, not better. He didn't feel accepted, he didn't feel affirmed, he felt hopeless. And it wasn't until he started struggling against it to get out of it that he finally found some hope. And it's interesting, it comes from a person who's been a Christian their whole life. So if you're interested in the topic, just want to point it out to you, because I know there's a lot of things we cannot talk about just because of time constraints. Let's review where we've been. If you look back where we've come over this topic, we started off with the notion that every survey tells us the same thing. No matter what we do in the church, it's making no impact on the level of sexuality that's creeping into the body of Christ. We grappled with the issue that no matter what you do, whether you read books or go listen to lectures or try to make yourself feel guilty or go to purity uh, retreats or put on promise rings or whatever it is that people have done, the studies show it's still making no impact. So we set out to kind of do something different, to expose the lies and rationalizations that people use to justify their behavior. And we kind of focused on those, I think, by calling them out and understanding that there were lies and rationalizations that might have helped us a little bit. We also looked at other factors that cause promiscuity in the church. A couple weeks ago, we spent a whole bunch of time talking about just the realm of Internet sex, pornography, things that were not just related to premarital sex, but were just as harmful and destructive and are equally sexually impure in the church. So that's kind of where we've been. The the question that we're still struggling with, that I think we've made some headway on answering, is why Christ has made so little impact in our churches. Even if we haven't done the best job of answering it, we've at least dared to ask a question in this group that few groups have ever really asked. It's a daring claim to just lay it out there. Say, hey, you know what? We as a people, as Christians, no matter what we profess to believe with our mouths, no matter how much we go to church, no matter what we're doing, no matter how much we really do believe in Jesus, for some reason, in this area, he seems to make not much of an impact. I think that alone has been kind of daring to to identify that. I think the next thing that we've identified that I also think we've made some things is on this next slide, that we've actually started to understand the number one reason it seems that we do disobey Christ is because we feel like it. And that, to me, has been the second revelation. The first is just daring to ask that question. The second one is daring to answer it with the fact that sexual sin, if we really want to break it down to its most component part, is a sin of defiance. It's an intentional sin that you could stop almost any time you wanted to, but we just don't want to. We are just in love with the sin too much. Now, I put sexual sin, as you guys know, it's a broad category. Your area may be totally different. You know, Some people, maybe they're struggling with internet pornography. Some people may be struggling with fantasizing. Some people may be just struggling with romantic notions of sexuality that are before marriage or they don't even exist. We may be creating images in our minds that aren't real. There are people who are all over the map in terms of where they are sexually. That's, but I think 
we can say without exception that a lot of times what's really behind all this is a genuine desire for us to feed our temptations or our appetites in this area. And it's been hard to admit that. We've looked at verses that really call out and condemn such behavior as intentional sin, repetitive sin, callous sin. And we've looked at verses that proclaim the truth. But tonight what I want to do is throw in some practical tips. Because I feel like even though we've been daring enough to look at the question from a why is Christ making no impact, and I feel like even though we are answering something very deep inside of us that just almost honestly sits before the Lord and says, it's just because we want to disobey you, Lord. We just love what we're doing so much we don't want to stop. Or even if we feel guilty about it, it doesn't do enough because... Guilt is not enough. We have to genuinely want to change inside, and there's nothing that really wants to really make us change. We say we want to. But can we get more practical about it? Last week, our effort to become practical was to go through the four areas that I think sexuality, if it's used improperly, hurts us. We looked at it physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I thought it was a great discussion. You know, just showed that I think we were into understanding the damage. Some people have told me, as we've talked about this series, that most churches don't go deep enough into what the damage is that's caused. I tried to do that a little bit last week and also in the second week when we talked about the lies and rationalizations by being a little bit open about the damage it's caused in my life. Just hoping to use that as an example. But I'm sure that if we really sat around here and everybody told their whole story, you would identify a lot more damage that this kind of sin causes in our lives. Last week's discussion, if you didn't get it, I think when we edit it down, will be very informative because a lot of people had great insight into the ways that these sins hurt us more than any other. And And while I believe that all sin is equal and God will forgive all sin equally, he never promised us that the consequences would be equal. And in this particular area, I think the consequences are sometimes devastating, although they're unseen. You know, sometimes sin in this area is kind of like arterial buildup, you know. It's going on on the inside. You don't really realize what you're doing to yourself until one day you just drop dead. And they wonder, like, what happened to that guy? He looked so healthy. It's like, yeah, but you didn't see him on the inside. And that's kind of where we keep this sin. We don't expose the sin to the light. I remember the horrid look on your faces when I said we were going to break up into small groups and confess our sins to one another in the area of sex. You guys just, like, freaked out, you know. But I want you to keep in mind that you might freak out that your person next to you might find out, but it's still building up. It's still happening, even if you're not going to expose it. And the worst part about it is we blatantly perform these things in front of God without any, any, like any thought that he actually has some say in it or that we're actually violating the body of Christ by doing it. All right. So tonight we're going to limit it to this. If it's really true what Paul says, the verses that we read last week, that our own sexuality and our choices in sexuality infect the body of Christ, how is it that we're going to protect one another? And the theme here is that we just need to be open. All right, You're going to see in a moment that everything is about openness. I don't believe that we're being open enough about the topic. And it's the only thing I can think of to kind of close off this talk, is to give you some practical tips on being open enough that we might actually use these as tools. Here's what we have done, I think, that has hurt the openness of the discussion in the church. We as a church have sensationalized sex. What that means is I believe we've made it into the ultimate, ultimate thing that can't be talked about, but yet everybody talks about it in whispers. The greatest sin of all that you would never hear anybody confess in church. Like If the pastor stood up in a congregation and said, I want you to confess your sins to me, Tell me what it is you struggle with. Don't, don't you always hear gossip is the first one? <laughs> you know, like, gossip. I struggle with envy. I struggle with not praying enough. I struggle with, like, not spending time enough. How many people stand up in the congregation and go, I struggle with, like, I'm just in front of the computer just watching porn all day, and I just can't, I don't even go to bed sometimes. Like, where's that guy or girl? Or how about the young couple that stands up in the back and goes, we're just struggling because we have sex in the back of the car like, like too often. Like that person doesn't ever confess in church. So what's happened as a result of throwing it into a darkness of kinds is we've sensationalized it. 
It's the one that if somebody actually said that, everybody would be like, ooh. It's also the one that if you found out about somebody, would like spread like wildfire in all those people who stood up and confessed about gossiping. So we are in a good position to preach against it, but we're never really in a good position to talk about its root causes or deal with it honestly because people aren't coming forward with it. People aren't identifying why they do what they do. They just kind of just tuck it under the rug. So you'll hear sermons against it. You'll hear verses about it. But there's not much honest dialogue about it. I wrote down here, our shame has silenced us and kept us from seeking help from those around us to help avoid sexual sin. This has become like a one-person project. You versus your sexual temptation. Husbands and wives don't even spend time talking about their temptations. It's not like they stop when you get married. You don't spend time talking about them. Everybody, it's like every person on their own. And yet, Christianity is not about being on your own. It's about being in a community of people. We're supposed to be a body of Christ. Each person having a function. Each person having a part. That sounds good when everybody's like, I'm the body of Christ. You're preaching, I'm teaching, you're... To, that else makes sense. But when we talk about sexuality, suddenly everybody's on their own. But the body of Christ is still being infected by our sexual immorality. It's time that we stopped acting alone. The last point on here, we need to be open about good sex and sexual impurity, both. We need to talk about the good and the bad in our Christian communities. I mean, listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying we should talk about it openly, like in this group right here. Can you do that? Because that's what we should be doing. And I think one of the reasons that we're struggling so hard is that we're not doing it enough. Before you uh, freak out too much about how that would look like, let me give you some tips. All right. I'm not advocating that we all stand up in, in, in this group and say, all right, here's the things that I did this week. Although if you feel like it, you're more than welcome. I don't want to stop you if the spirit is moving you. Okay? We don't want to be open to the point where we're actually reveling in our sin or glorifying it. But here's what I think we should be doing. We need to have an open dialogue, free from repression, definitely, because the church is all too often trying... You know, methods to just repress the problem, but free from sensationalism. So, again, no extremes. We're not trying to repress it. We're not trying to glorify it. And free from definitely celebration of sin. We're not trying to just say, yep, everybody's doing it. It's okay. I know we're all struggling. Let's just keep struggling together. It's not the point. The point is to call it out in truth. We also need to be open in a spirit of confession with another. But look at this. Limited to people we can be accountable to. I could stand here and confess a whole host of things I didn't confess, but a lot of my advisors told me that's probably not the best idea if you want to keep your job. <laughs> but more than that, it's just probably not a good idea because then you're glorifying sin. You're not really t- speaking to people who you're accountable to, although I should be accountable to every one of you. But I do have an accountability group that's built in. If you don't, we're going to talk about how to find one maybe. Being open and giving permission. And this one's going to be hard to swallow. For those that we call friends to basically call us on our actions. We never allow this one. And finally, open recognition that sexual impurity starts with temptation. And that we have an obligation to ourselves and one another. We always remember the obligation to ourselves. We remember obligations to Jesus. We forget obligations to one another. To curb, limit, eradicate sexual temptation. Let's walk through these one at a time. Here's what I mean by being open about a dialogue about sex. We have to be okay to talk about it. I don't know where. Obviously, it has to be an appropriate place. But you know, in this group, I'm kind of I'm glad that when we hang out, when we spend time together, that people are okay bringing up subjects and saying, what do you think about this? Is this okay? Do you think this is too far? Do you think that this is sinful? And I'm not just talking about sexual issues. I'm talking about it should be all issues. We really need to be that kind of community. But in this area, we're very cautious. I think the church made us cautious. I mean, you don't want to be the guy who stands up in the church and goes, I'm struggling with having sex with my girlfriend. Like, everybody's just going to turn around and go, get that guy out of here. Instead of, hey, we need to go talk to that guy after the service and help him out. Most churches just help you to the door. They don't really help you out where you're at. We have to understand that there's a responsibility to speak truth about God's plans, desires, And that what he intends to protect us from, that kind of harm. You guys have an obligation. We'll talk about this a little bit in the next one. But you have an obligation to speak truth to people. 
but you're not going to know who to speak to if we're not open about it. We definitely do have to put away immaturity and naive notions about the problem. I've tried to do that in this series. I think we succeeded at least in that far. If you question why we have to be open about sex, if for no other reason it's because we have to shine God's truth on it. You know, sexual sin is like cockroaches. They kind of like to hide in the dark. You turn on the light, it kind of runs and goes scurrying. And that's the way all darkness is. All right? You can't shine the light unless you know what the truth is, which I hope you've at least read some of the verses we've talked about and memorized them or at least know where they're at. But second of all, you have to shine the light on people. It doesn't work if you don't do that. All right? Next slide, Anthony. Let's be open in the spirit of confession. Like I said, I'm not saying you should stand up here every night and say, you know what, I have things to confess, but if you want to, it wouldn't be a bad discipline. It might shake this group into some real understanding of what it's like. When I told you to get into groups and confess your sins to one another, like people freaked out. But like I said, I think that Jesus would say to you, better that you confess to your friends and change your life and be shamed into it than continue in your blatant disregard for my word. Jesus went so far as to say to somebody that if it causes you to lust, why don't you pluck out your eye? It sounds painful, but he was trying to use hyperbole and exaggeration to make a strong point. You do anything it takes to stop sinning. If it means sitting in a group of four people and telling them everything you did, and that's the biggest shameful thing you could think of that you would just die to do, then die rather than continue to sin intentionally. But look at it. It really needs to be limited to people who can really hold you accountable. So here's my tips. Enter into an accountable relationship. Find two or three people in your life who can hold you accountable. Find two or three people in your life that make an agreement with you that when you get to a certain place or you've done something that you need to talk about that you can, good or bad, Because sometimes the sin lies in our good plans as much as in our bad deeds. Practice the discipline of confession. It is a discipline. It doesn't come easy. I have an accountability group. We meet for breakfast. We sit around. We talk. We give each other advice. A little harder when it comes to the confession time. Like when the question going around the table is, so what are you guys struggling with this week? Everybody's like, oh, gossip. And we're supposed to be like an accountability group. We're supposed to be able to break down and say, Hey, this is what I'm struggling with this week. You can even use tools that are specifically designed for accountability. In this area, if you guys, and it's for girls too, but if you really want to be truly accountable about sexual impurity and what you guys are doing on the internet, go to this website. It's run by triplexchurch.com. These guys are on the forefront of combating pornography. We talked about them in one of our talks a little bit. There are two pastors that have launched a whole ministry aimed at the pornographic industry as well as people who struggle with pornography if you go to this website that's up here this triplexchurch.com and you go to x3 watch it's a software it downloads onto your computer and then once a month it sends a report to whoever you tell it to listing all the websites you've visited so if you want like true accountability load this on here and send it to three friends and that way every time you think ah you know who's looking other than god You at least know that if God's not enough to stop you, then maybe your three friends, when they go, hey, man, what the heck were you doing? Go, oh, no, 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 that was uh, was totally legitimate. I was like, yeah? Let's look at some of these sites together. That's the one way to do it. Three guys in my accountability group use this software. It's their way because they feel like, you know what? I might have a discipline, but it's not strong enough. This will make sure that I don't do that. There's other tools, by the way, at triplexchurch.com if you want to. They have online programs for people who feel like they're addicted to pornography for men and women, by the way. This is not just limited to a men's problem. It used to be. But ever since the advent of the Internet, the growing group on the Internet viewing pornography is women now because they no longer have the shame of having walking into a store to buy something. Now they can find it online. There's programs where you can go through. They even have counselors you can talk to. You can call them up. They even have a list to tell you, are you addicted to sexuality or sexual impurity or pornography? If you don't know whether you are or aren't, they have checklists you can go through. It's a really helpful site. It's a tool I would suggest that some of us use it. But here's what we have to be open about if we're going to even think about accountability. We kind of have to end the phrase, it's none of your business. Because if we're really a community of Christ, it's everybody's business. One of the examples in the chastity books that I was reading was... Six women that lived together in a dorm at a Christian college 
And they knew that one of their roommates would spend the night two or three nights a week with her boyfriend who lived down the street. The person writing the story is the girl who used to spend the night. And her question was simply, in the three years that we lived together, I always really wondered why none of the girls I was living with ever asked me like what I was doing there. Maybe you're one of those people that if somebody in your dorm room came up to you and said, what exactly are you doing with your boyfriend or your girlfriend when you disappear and come back the next morning? What's the typical American answer? It's none of your business. That's the typical American answer. This is one of those areas where American and Christianity have nothing to do with each other. That is not the answer for Christ's people. That is not the answer for followers of Christ. The answer for followers of Christ is, this is what I was doing last night. We were popping popcorn watching Bambi. Now, if that person said to you, as this girl did, we never had sex, I would just spend the night at his house. But she also wrote, I still think back to that time and think that's probably inappropriate too. But nobody ever even asked me. And that kind of made more of an impact on her. But listen to the person who's writing the story. The impact was, and she knew what she was doing. She thought she was okay with it. Maybe in retrospect, it was bad judgment to spend the night at her boyfriend's house because she was creating intimacy that shouldn't exist. But the real impact on her was, where was the faith of my friends? Where was the accountability? Where was the community? They didn't even ask me. Now, I know it's easy to give you a story like that, but it's hard to do. I know plenty of couples that are dating. It's hard for me to walk up to them and say, I mean, usually here's, here's how we talk to Christian couples. Hey, how are you guys doing? You guys doing okay? Cool. Like just waiting for them to go, we're having sex. Okay, all right, good. Let's talk about it. You know? This is not like a Geiger counter looking for like radiometric stuff, all right? You can't just walk up and just like wait for them to throw it out there, okay? Hold like the magic wand of sexuality, like, how you guys doing? <laughs> you know? It doesn't work. Angela. It's inappropriate to spend time over your house. Why? I didn't say it was inappropriate to spend time at your boyfriend's house. I think it's inappropriate to spend the night at your boyfriend's house. If as most people do, they end up falling asleep together because I think what you're doing is you're creating like a false sense of intimacy. No, maybe not even false. It's a real sense of intimacy. But it may be a displaced sense of intimacy in the fact that you're not married to this person yet. Some level of intimacy like that maybe should be reserved to marriage. And even if you think that, you know what, that level of intimacy is probably okay, you're still putting yourself in a position where you might be tempted. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the verses we looked at are like, not even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, to you, from the inside, you're thinking, but there's nothing going on. I'm just spending the night there. But I think we have to guard ourselves against those levels of intimacy because they are just as dangerous. Let's say you could guarantee to me that if you spent the night at your boyfriend's house, even in the same bed, that it would never lead to sex. I would still tell you that it was wrong for you to seek that level of intimacy outside of marriage, not because of sex, just because that level of intimacy really is reserved for marriage. When you say level of intimacy, you're meaning specifically calling us like what's in his arms. It seems a little far-fetched. It can create like an attachment for you. I think that that's a pretty deep level of intimacy. To hug someone? Not to hug someone, but to fall asleep with them the whole night long. Yeah, I think that's... Intimacy is something God wants to protect us from, whether it's sexual or not. Because when you break up with somebody that you've been intimate with, whether it's sexual or just intimate in this one way it's going to cause hurt that would not otherwise be if you'd created other boundaries to protect your heart. Most people would probably disagree and say, I don't think that's going to tempt me. I think in our modern society that's okay, and I don't know that that's anything that would cause anyone else to stumble. I'm not so sure about that. Because intimacy in itself is a sin. Intimacy in itself is not a sin, but intimacy is reserved for, deep levels of intimacy are reserved for marriage, whether they're sexual or not. Remember, the, the greater issue is, why is God telling us not to get intimate? It's not because he's trying to make an artificial line between marriage and not. He's trying to say intimate relationships that you break up are going to cause you pain and are going to damage your heart and are going to lead you to have inability to give your full self to your future mate. So whether that intimacy comes from physical actions or it comes from emotional actions, 
or other things that just create intimacy, I'm just saying guard your heart against intimacy. That's my advice to you. I can't say that it's 100% biblical. There's nothing I can find in the Bible that will say spending the night at somebody's house. You know, But those things are moving down the road towards intimacy. It may even be non-sexual intimacy. But still, I believe that God's greater point is, Angela, I don't want you to hurt when you break up with this person in a way that's going to scar your heart. I agree with you in the, in the aspect that mature intimacy is bad for your psychological expression and support. But it just seems to me, I mean, you're defining deep intimacy uh, and it equates to hugging somebody while you're sleeping. It just seems a little far-fetched. Okay. I guess that's why I can't give you a definitive line because to someone, some one person may say, that's not intimate to me at all. And to somebody else, that could be like the most intimate thing they've ever done with somebody. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I think it is a little bit relative, but the, the bigger point is guard against intimacy. I know people who would rather hold someone all night long than have sex with them or that it's more intimate to them. That sex is even more physical and it's not intimate as much as just the after part of just holding on to somebody. And I'm, I know you haven't even brought sex into this example. But I'm just trying to point out that people are different. But the bigger point should be to guard yourself against intimacy. It just depends on who you are. I remember the first time I spent the night with somebody. Okay? But we didn't even sleep. It was a girl that I knew and we spent the whole night literally walking around. But we spent the whole night. Okay, now, I was, like, in high school or something, so this was, like, huge for me, right? But by the next morning, I mean, I was, like, so attached to this person, you know? I don't know why. Now, maybe it's just me. I mean, maybe it's just me, but that act, I'm not saying, like, boy, I was sinning the whole time I was doing that. I don't know what we were doing. We were probably just being stupid. We probably just gone to bed. She was going to be there the next morning, you know? But somehow I felt like we bonded that night because we spent the whole night walking around and talking and it became like this super glue for us that like made this relationship that probably shouldn't have otherwise even taken off take off. Everyone's different. But again, the greater point is watch against intimacy because we always think of it in the physical sense, but it creeps in in other ways. Okay. Even with the issue of kissing, for example, there are some couples who even in their engagement will not kiss. I think they're nuts. All right. I think they're going too far. I don't know what they're doing. They're like running for some false sense of spirituality. But that's my belief. I also know some of the couples, and one of them was in my accountability group who did that. I don't know what they were doing. I would think that that almost leads to problems in marriage. Like you're almost like denying that the body, you're like trying to make body bad before marriage, body good afterwards. Like that's too Gnostic in my opinion. That's too like, that's like, that's old church heresy that's crept in that I don't believe in. I don't think that is, is almost like another form of a lie. But I can't make a hard and fast rule because to them, that was something beautiful. You know, to me, it was like something nutty. Just guard yourself against those things. Here's the point on this slide that I'm trying to make. If you're the type of person that thinks it's none of your business, is that going to be the first word out of your mouth? You're not in an accountable relationship. But the burden is also on the people who should be asking. I know there are people in this group who are dating. I should be asking them on a regular basis, how are you guys doing? Are you guys staying physically pure? I don't want to ask that question. It makes me uncomfortable. All right? How you guys doing? Yeah? How you guys doing? Is that okay? You know? It's that stupid look people have when they walk into a church and they don't know anybody. You know that look, right? It's like, why do people grin like that? Because we're trying to identify Christians have learned and learned behavior. It's like, you know, animals learn things by instinct, and Christians learn this one too. If you're smiling the whole time when you're in a church... Everyone knows you're spiritual and super okay, and they won't walk up and bother you. So, like, when you walk into a church and they go, hi, welcome to New Song, you go, hey, how you doing? The whole time, you know, you're sitting around, you know, then you, like, look at the screen for a while, take a break, read the bulletin, and then when you look around to meet people and they go, turn around and greet somebody, you're like, hi, how you doing? Yeah, hi, you know, because you're... It's our way, it's our defense mechanism of making sure that nobody has the audacity to turn around and say, are you really doing okay this week? Because you're like, woo, the uncomfortableness is like going up here, I can't take it, I can't breathe. You know, I'm drowning in awkwardness. But that's what we do, so we put on that defense mechanism. So we do the same thing when we see couples in church, we're like, how you guys doing? You guys doing good? It's good to see you. You know, like maybe I just stand here long enough, they'll just tell me what's going on, like I'll just know. Like, we're not having sex. Okay, good. 
All right, that's good. All right, good deal. You know what? That's wrong. It's totally wrong. If we're a community of Christ that shares everything like we're supposed to, and I know we're far from that. Let's not fool ourselves. Today in America, we are far from the community of Christ he wants us to be. We're far too individualistic. But if we're supposed to, at least on this topic, be a community, then you should not be afraid to walk up to anybody that you know who's dating and say, hey, you guys staying pure? Are you guys okay? Is there something I can pray for you about? You guys struggling in a certain area? Now, maybe if you're a guy, you probably are not asking the girl that. Okay? Maybe if you don't even know the person, you're probably not asking at all because, come on, let's be real. But I know Eric and I know Ryan. They're good friends of mine. We talk about a lot of stuff. We should be talking about this or at least checking in once in a while. It's like, hey, what's going on? What's up? Let's talk about it, you know? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the police. If anything, I'm your jailmate. <laughs> you know, I'm just as screwed up as you are. But that doesn't mean that I can't ask. Look at this. You need to have an openness to refrain from the following things if we're going to make this work. Defensiveness. No defensiveness. No anger. No repudiation. No retaliation. You know what? I don't care if you're the biggest sinner in the world asking somebody else about their sin. This is the one area if you're really going to be accountable you can't turn around and turn the tables. If I go up to Ryan and go, Ryan, how are you doing on purity? You can't turn around and go, well, you're like the last person who should be asking me. You know, like, look at all the things you're doing. Well, okay, that's good. Maybe we should have that conversation next. But let's first have the conversation. If Ryan and I are really friends and we're going to have an accountable relationship, then let's at least have the first conversation. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing? Then, then, we, can, then we can talk about how I'm doing, you know. So no retaliation. No, no, no temptation to discredit somebody else's word or the word of God just because they happen to be a sinner. We're all sinners. If I come up to you and ask you, hey, dude, let me keep you accountable on something I notice you're doing. You know how much courage it just took me to even do that? All right. That takes a lot of courage to just, just walk up to anybody and just say, hey, I need to call you on something I think is not right. And then I'm inviting you to do the same thing in my life. But let me at least get through what I'm saying because I'm totally stressed out. Angela? You know, I think this is like a bigger issue. It's at the church, I'm going to generalize, we have these surface relationships, the kind that are like, hey, what's up, good. But we're not really, I mean, it's not only about sex. It's about every every aspect of your life because we're not real with each other. I think if people really shared uh, true friendship and true concern and true compassion, that we would genuinely ask, but also we would see the genuineness in someone else. And just, like, I would be annoyed if somebody out of the blue that's trying to act all self-righteous and Christian came up to me. You know, how dare they ask me how I'm doing sexually? Well, let me, let me be clear because I think you're absolutely right that this can't happen in the church body at large, okay? But here's the points I think you should understand. First, to truly be accountable and in accountable relationships, it needs to be a small defined group. Because privacy, secrecy, all those kind of things need to, be, need to be maintained. And second of all, I would never encourage you to be in an accountable relationship with somebody who is not already your friend. But the flip of that might also be true. Not every friend can you, will you be in an accountable relationship with. But somewhere in your friends, hopefully there are good Christian friends who you can also take to the next level and also call accountability. Maybe among all of your friends, there's two people three people, maybe one. Maybe it is a stranger that you develop an accountable relationship with, like a mentor, that you just say, I don't know you, but I will get to know you, and over time I will develop a a relationship like this. I don't think that in a church you ever will, despite my exaggerations to the contrary, you ever will have somebody stand up and say, hey, let's, uh, let's just go around the room and ask the couples how they're doing on sexuality. I mean, I wish somebody would do that. Just ask the question, maybe not get the answers, but I think it would just shock people enough that somebody cared enough to actually walk up and down the aisles like checking for homework, you know? But it has to be a limited group. But you have to ask yourself, if among all my friends I don't have a single person I could be that accountable with, look at the definition of friendship you have or the people that you're working with because somebody in your friendship group should be, even if you don't have one, you should find somebody who you can be accountable with. And they may be fellow strugglers, but at least hopefully somebody who can call you on things. If the person's not willing to call you on anything, 
my accountability group is going away to uh, a little mini retreat this, this next week. And my, my wife was asking me, because she's not going to get to go, she was asking me, like, do you like hanging out with these guys? It's a tough question. <laughs> they listen to some of my CDs, so I better be careful. Um, I don't, it's not thrilling for me to hang out with these guys. I don't go like, woohoo, these are my like, best friends. That on a natural day, if I had nothing else to do, I would go hang out with them. But part of the reason is because there's a difficult job that they keep me accountable. You know what I mean? And that's why it needs to be a limited group, people you can trust, and people that will call you. They ask me uncomfortable questions. That's why it's not always fun. Because, yes, we have fun. Yes, we laugh. We eat together. We have a good time. But somewhere in that conversation, one of us knows that it's time to ask the questions. And turn to the guy who's been struggling with the internet porn and say, how you doing? I got your report last week. Like, what happened on Thursday? You want to tell us about that? Like, and all of us are like, like, don't ask me. All right. Let me throw in one more slide on this so we can really make the debate a little heated more. Not only do we need to be open to accountability and get rid of this, it's none of your business attitude, but we need to be open to other things. Understanding that sexual impurity starts with temptation and that we have an obligation, a responsibility, not only to stay away from it, but not to cause it. Now, I'm hoping next week that our guest lecturer will talk about this more from a woman's perspective, because this is, you're not going to take it well from me, but let me just say it anyways, since we're talking about being speakers of truth. Politically correct stuff, whatever's fashionable, that's not the standard. God's standard is the standard. Women, if you're wearing something that causes other people to stumble, I've heard this from so many women, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's really the man who's supposed to do it. I don't know if that's right or wrong. Wait, hold on. Before we break up in a whole, like the whole thing falls apart. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You have to recognize that we, if we're going to be a true community with one another, have an obligation to each other, even in that community. In the book that I would recommend some of you pick up sometime, which is the one that Eric was making fun of the cover, there's a book called Real Sex. It's written by Lauren Winner. She writes for Christianity Today. She's a very good journalist. She is not at all your standard writer. She comes from a Jewish background. She screwed up in her sexual walk in every way you could imagine. Failed miserably at chastity. But wrote an incredibly intelligent book about her struggles and what was wrong with what the church was telling her the whole time when she did become a Christian. And how it never worked and maybe why it never worked. But one of the points she makes, I'm just going to take it from her because I have no authority to speak these words. Is that far too many people in the church think that they can buy into the fashionable sexual culture that we have. And then say, hey, I'm not responsible for the way that that affects other people around me in the church. She calls that a lie. She says that if you want to look like a cover girl or wear the same clothes that everyone is sexually portraying all over the news. And show up to church that way and think that that's not going to affect people around you, then you can think that way, but it's not true. You can bury your head in the sand, but according to her view, and I believe it's a pretty liberal view already, I was surprised she even made the comment that it does affect other people. All right, let me finish two more points, and then we'll throw it out to you. People are going to tear me apart. We should also be accountable to what we listen to, what we watch, what magazines we buy, what jokes we tell. You guys know that I kicked off the series by saying that the worst magazine for men is not Playboy or Penthouse. It's Maxim. It's offensive. That picture that we use as our graphic for this topic is right out of that magazine. Right from an article about how to score in church and how to get you know, girls in church and how to take them to bed. We need to be accountable for what we're looking at, what we're listening to. I know that's controversial. You're like, leave me alone. I want to listen to whatever I want to listen to. Don't tell me I can't listen to rock and roll. I'm not, I'm not doing that sermon. All right? But don't tell me that we can do anything we want and have it not impact the body of Christ. That is far too naive. And of course, we should pay close attention to how we act, what we talk about, how we carry ourselves around other people. Because if we're going to be in true, accountable relationships, and if we're going to be a true community together, we need to realize that what we do in the community affects other people in the community. Comments on that? How, how do you let... A- female know their words. Like, if I just walk up to some girl in church that I don't know and be like, hey, put your 
what you're wearing is really cosmic kind of stuff. Do you want to, do you want to put a jacket on? <laughs> you would have to like do that to every girl you pass on the street. I think the question the question is important. How do you do that? Part of the the comment, first of all, is that I don't know that you have to do that. Okay. What Lauren is trying to point out in her book is that women, you need to pay attention to the fact that the way you dress does impact other men. She's actually placing a responsibility on women. Okay? That chastity book, Every Young Woman's Battle, makes the same point, but I kind of, they, at first I just like, ah, oh, give me a break. Like, this is just too nutty. But the point is still there. And so I think, first of all, the responsibility belongs on us. If I bring in, like, let's say I go out and I get some, like, really sexually explicit rap lyrics and I'm playing them in my car as we're all driving to go get something to eat afterwards, the responsibility is on me not to do that. Now, of course, it is easier for you to turn around and go, hey, dude, do you really think we should be listening to that music in the car? And then I'd probably be like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm not being a good Christian. You know, and, like, turn it off, right? It's harder to say that to a woman. I I wouldn't recommend that you do it. I don't know that you should. But if you do, just make sure somebody's got the car running in the parking lot <laughs> so you can do it. I think the point is more that men and women should recognize that things they do, act, say, the way they behave. By the way, I know, I know a couple guys that are pretty big flirts, you know, and I don't know that they should be doing the stuff that they're doing exactly. It, it, may, it has nothing to do with the way they're dressed, you know, it's just the way they act, the way they carry themselves. Angela. People get turned on by the weirdest stuff, and not everybody gets turned on by the same hot chick. I mean, chemistry and whatever is all different, and if somebody gets turned on by an ankle, that's not, that doesn't mean I'm going to wear socks, okay, if I don't feel like wearing socks. If somebody gets turned on because it's a little bit above the knee, and oh no, there's a little bit of shoulder and you can see her back, I'm it's ridiculous. Your first comment I agree with. You should not blame the woman because a guy gets turned on. This isn't about blaming women. What this is is about taking responsibility, and this is something that none of us want to do. Every one of us can justify whatever it is we like to do. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick some person at random. Somebody walks in, she's a girl, and she's wearing a short skirt and a, and a midriff, something where she's showing her stomach and all this stuff, and all of us say... Forget all of us. I've heard people dress like that say, it's not my fault that people look at me lustfully. This is just the way that I dress. It's not her fault, but the second part of it means I bear no responsibility. It's like, actually, that's not true. If I told you that what you wear causes cancer to people, (laughs) you can't just say, I can't help that. I'm just going to wear it. You would probably change the outfit. Because if you knew that what you did causes harm to other people, even though you didn't think you were doing anything wrong, the person would probably think, I don't believe I'm doing anything wrong, but if it hurts other people, I should probably take that into consideration. We as a church have bought into an American myth that we can do anything we want as long as it doesn't bother anybody else. The weird thing is, it does bother other people. But we think like it's none of their business to come tell us that. Hey, it's like, I'm sorry, you know that, that thing you're wearing? A little too revealing. I've actually seen people go up to a guy and go, hey, you know those shorts you're wearing? Uh, A little too disrespectful for this church. I don't feel like you're being very respectful to the atmosphere and the way you're dressed. Like, what are you talking about? God could accept me in anything I wear. Yeah, he could, but the other people in the church are disturbed right now. All right? And if it's causing them a problem, maybe you need to think, why am I insisting on a course of action that now I know causes other people a problem? See, I think we need to shift our focus a little bit from, yeah, God could accept you in the nude, but you're not going to show up to church that way. I'm all for being respectful to a community that you go to, right? I've been going to the church. I mean, you go to that church because you believe in, in what they teach. You're going to dress like they dress, whatever. You do your thing. But I'm talking about in general. Out on the street, I mean, people will wear what they wear. It's a hot day. You're not going to wear a lot of clothes. Okay, is every woman responsible because some whatever guy is lusting? Isn't lust a part of your own brain? How is she going to take responsibility? And what does that even mean? No, I was just say, I mean, I realize that things are relative, but it just seems like because we're talking about sex that it even this topic of sort of stigmatized. But I mean, if I show up to church like in a chicken costume, you know, I, I'm not, you know, it doesn't have like 
my interaction with other people's brains. I mean, I am causing a disturbance. I am doing something actively just by my dress. And sure, I may be the guy who goes everywhere in a chicken costume. It's just who I am. But that doesn't mean it doesn't screw with my environment. Angela's taking it to a different level, too, by the way, which she's saying, what about when you walk out of the church? Like, let's say you're going to work. Let's say you're going down to walk down in Newport Beach, and you're just going for a walk. Right. But see, everything does have a context. I mean, if you're going to say to me, well, people at the beach wear two pieces, so I should wear one to church because God sees me at the beach and he sees me in church. Like, wait a minute. Let's put things in context, okay? I've dated girls my whole life. Girls know when they're kind of pushing the context limit. You know what I mean? My wife comes to me and says, like, does this outfit look cute? And I go, yes, that outfit looks really cute. Could I wear it to work? No. You can't wear that to work. You could wear it to the mall. You could wear it to a party. But you're not wearing that to work, okay? You ever walk down Sunset Boulevard, you see all these girls all, like, ready, done up for the night? Like, maybe in that context, that's normal. But you're not going to wear that to church. You're not going to wear that to work. You're not going to wear that to the hospital. You know what I mean? There's just certain context things that if you, you know when you're pushing that limit, and even if you don't, all I'm saying to you is be open if someone ever came up to you and says, hey, you know what? I'm not so sure. That kind of makes people feel uncomfortable. Our natural reaction is always to get defensive and go, who are you to tell me? You know, God accepts me the way I am. It's like, yeah, I know, but you're actually impacting the community. Do you want to be a part of it? Or are you on your own? And so I think one of the points that Chris made earlier that I think is really good, and it does come down to, it's not just on clothing, but it can come in anything. I mean, think of your friends who are non-Christians and fill in this blank. You're not like other Christians. You're really cool because, and then fill in the blank. Make sure the blank really is befitting of Christ. Like, you're really cool. You're not like other Christians because you'll listen to dirty rap lyrics. Like, is that the image you want to be giving the non-Christian about you? You're not like other Christians. You're really cool because you're willing to, like, wear these, like, crazy outfits and, like, look like this. Or or, because you're willing to go to the strip club with us. You're a cool Christian. It's like, is that the image of Christianity we want to be giving to our friends? See, not everything that is permissible is good for the body is what Paul tells us. We have to be careful because we read those words and we think, yeah, sure. But when someone comes and tells you that while that's permissible for you to be doing, it might not be a good idea, we tend to get defensive. We think, hey, who are you? It's not your business. It's just what I am. It's not my fault. It's their fault. It's like, you know what? It might be their fault. It is their fault. You can't control their lusting, but you know what? You can at least help alleviate some of the temptation, maybe. If you're picking it up and you know your limits and you know you can uh, go to a certain extent, but you know that there's a struggle with this person, you know that this person has a struggle with seeing women in this context, I think that it's your responsibility not to drink up or not to dress in that manner. Even though you are given the liberties of being able to do that, there are some things that you have to consider about your surroundings. And how it impacts other people. I mean, my worship team, the worship team that I'm on, they love to drink and party. I don't know why. Not, not overly, but like we'll, we'll finish worship practice and they'll be like, hey, do you guys want to go grab a beer or something and hang out and grab some appetizers and just talk and hang out? I was like, the first time I ever did, like, I'm finished with worship practice, they're like, you guys want to get a beer? I'm like, is that even allowed? Like, are worship teams allowed to drink beer? Like, is that possible? So we go to, like, Applebee's, we sit around this big table, they all order a beer, and you know me, I, I just don't drink. It's not because I don't believe in alcohol, I just don't like the taste of it. So they're like, beer, 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 and it's like Diet Coke. And they kind of look at me, and they all look at me like, oh no, someone's going <laughs> to someone's gonna tell, you know, like, what's going on? So just for fun, like, they turn to me, and my good buddy Jamie, who's the leader of our team, he says to me, he's like, you don't want a beer? And I'm like, well, I really struggle with alcohol and alcoholism. You should have seen them. Like, they were all, like, just white-faced, you know? Just totally, like, mid-beer, like, you know, like, oh, my God. And I just let on. I was like, ah, I just kid you guys, you know? And then, of course, like, half the beer was spilled on me and just frustration. But you know the thing is? That's exactly the point that Eric's trying to make. I mean, they find nothing wrong, and I don't either, with having a beer. But if it caused me to stumble because I was in a place where I struggled with it, they at least respected it, or got scared, whatever one, for a moment to think, what would the ramifications be to this guy? It's not their fault that I'm an alcoholic if I was one. It's not their fault that I'm screwed up or whatever it is, that I look at beer and... <laughs> You know, I mean, whatever it is, that's it's me. I'm not blaming them. But the fact that they stopped and thought, maybe this isn't a good idea, which is perfectly legitimately their right to do, is what made us an accountable group.
what makes us a Christian community. Now, I know a lot of times in the church, to be honest with you, we have confused guilt with accountable communities. So just out of guilt and shame, you wouldn't show up to church in a certain way. Or just out of guilt and shame, you wouldn't admit to your friends that you drank. It's not out of concern for them. We just don't do it because we're afraid to do it. Like smoking. Like who smokes at church? And yet half the people are running their cars after like, you know. We shouldn't do it for the wrong motivation, but at least they did it. And that meant a lot to me. I was like looking at them thinking like, okay, it's just a joke. But I was surprised that they all took it so seriously. Because I think that's where real people work together in community as brothers and sisters. Not when they say... Hey, it's your problem. Because then you're isolating the person in the problem. It is their problem. It is their sin. It's not yours. But the fact that we let down something that is otherwise our legitimate right to do to help that person is really what being an accountable community is all about. To say, you know what? Yes, I could wear a two-piece right now and, and by rights, I'm doing everything that everybody else on this beach is doing. But you know what? I didn't drive with these people. I didn't leave, you know, They didn't drive with those other people. They didn't leave with those other people. I don't hang out with them the whole day. You know what I'm going to do? Just... Because it might cause someone else to stumble, I'm just going to choose not to do that. The sin of like lusting or whatever, that is up to the person who is lusting. But as a family of believers, we need to be able to help one another out, encourage each other to grow closer in the relationship with God, no matter you know, just try our best to do that, not only pertaining to what we wear, but pertaining to all sorts of things. This girl is going to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the, Angela, I'm so glad that you're struggling with the practicality of it. But look, I can't, I'm never going to give you hard and fast answers because the context is about the best I can go. First of all, I'm not qualified to tell a woman what she should and shouldn't wear. All I'm saying is consider this thought for a second. If the world is trying to get everyone to look sexier and sexier and sexier, and we as men or women buy into that and wear sexier and sexier outfits, aren't we not contributing to the problem? The greater point is still the issue, not the detail. That if you really want to be part of an accountable community that's going to eradicate sex from the body of Christ, you've got to be not only open to somebody coming up to you and saying, how's your purity doing? But you have to be open to somebody coming up and saying, I've got a problem with this. Yeah. Life is all about love. Like loving God and loving other people. Like if we would just bring it down, like what would be the best for the other person in this like subject like how would I best love them I think because it's so hard to just set like fixed rules because they can be totally different for different people you know but like if we bring it down like how does this person need to be loved and like what can I do to respect them in that I think that can guide us a lot she's going to heaven Angela Angela you Angela, you are the lifeblood of this group because you're the one that keeps the... You keep us real. Exodus is about being real and going deeper than any other group has gone before. And, and I publicly want to say that you help us do that every week. So I'm not trying to make fun of you. It's just funny to say that you're not going to heaven. But... It's just... You're going to heaven, Angela. We love you. We love you.